action. Welcome to Torn Stubs, a trash movie podcast with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and head of podcast at Trash, which can be found at movetotrash.co.uk. And Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. We're continuing our deep dive into Quentin Tarantino's filmography with his eighth film, The Hateful Eight. Joshua. The year is 1877 and a bounty hunter, John Ruth, who's played by Kurt Russell, is transporting bruised and beaten ne'er-do-well Daisy Dormergu, played by Jennifer Jason Lee, to the gallows. On the way, he picks up Major Warren, who's played by Simon L. Jackson, and new sheriff Chris Mannix, played by Walton Goggins. That's <laughs> a stupid name. That's a great name. Goggins. But there a... was a TV show called Postman Pat. Oh, yeah, I know it well. One of the characters was called Mrs. Goggins. <laughs> Always reminds me of that. Um, a blizzard forces them to stop off at Minnie's Haberdashery, a, a ramshackle hut in the middle of nowhere that will serve as a setting for a bloody final showdown as loyalties are tested and secrets bubble to the surface. Ooh, and Ooh. you've made that film seem more interesting <laughs> than it actually is. Did you not love it, Rob? Well, did you see it in the cinema? Uh, no, the first time I saw it was on Netflix this time last year when it first arrived on netflix i think that's when i first saw it as well mm. i never saw it in the cinema i would have liked to have seen the roadshow version which had a um an overture oh an interval and all that an interval but that was three hours and two minutes or something it was long but when there's an interval it's it's manageable it's yeah. fine i mean i don't mind long movies as long as it's ticking along you know i can yeah. easily watch the godfather and the godfather part two and both there is... of them in in in, in one sitting <laughs> put your hands together <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> It's from Friends. Oh, I see. Like, yeah, Jam. And that girl from the coffee place yeah. or whatever. Put your hands together. <laughs> um, this version of the film does have a blackout moment that is almost around the midpoint, I think, where you can imagine an interval would have happened quite easily. So, is that when it comes back in and he's narrating the film? Yeah. Tarantino. Yeah. So that's the, the poisoning moment. That's the moment where I think the film actually comes alive. Mm. But the film opens in typical Quentin Tarantino enjoying the medium style. He is, yeah. This has been shot in 65mm, then transferred to 70mm, so it's super wide, super ultra-wide. and Ultra Panavision, isn't it? Yeah, and it's a gorgeous-looking movie. You know, it really, it really takes advantage of that wide angle of view that you get. So the... The landscapes, the vistas are vast and never-ending. But then also, if it's a close-up, it's a, a wonderful, really wide close-up of, let's say, Samuel L. Jackson's face. That's exactly what I was thinking. Because he used to have that close-up when he's hearing something happening, don't you? Someone's talking somewhere else in, that, in the haberdashery, and he's listening, and you're thinking, oh, he's thinking about something that's going on there. But it's just... A really, because most people would just associate seventy millimeter with oh the spaghetti western, the the standoff in the town or the the valley and the town in the in the foreground and the valley in the distance. But to use it on someone's face or the inside of a carriage mm. is quite ingenious. Well, 
um, Paul Thomas Anderson, he did, he filmed The Master in 70mm, didn't he? And that's not a, yes. that's not a kind of a big sweeping vista filled epic. That's about the characters and the environment that they're in. Yes. And it really does heighten it. If you can feel every but pore. And... There are moments in The Master where it is a, a huge vista, like the motorcycle scenes, um, Whacking Phoenix mm. on the boat. On the boat, yeah, I remember yeah. that bit, yeah. That, yeah, I suppose they're the bits that really do go make you go wow, yes. and they stick with you, and you know you remember them. I would like to have seen both of those films on the big screen. Mm, I saw the Master on the big screen, and it was even though the film itself, I don't remember hugely everything that happened, and I remember it being very staid. Um, it's but, very, it's very much a character piece. It's yeah, not, it's very thin on plot. Yeah, exactly. But it did look amazing on the big screen. So. Yeah. yeah, as I imagine this one would. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I really, I do kind of wish I had seen it on the big screen because um, not only would it look amazing, but you are kind of slightly trapped. <laughs> you have to, yes, you have to sit you through have the boring stuff. It. Yeah, it's more like how I feel like if I'd seen Roma on the big screen, would I oh, walked yeah. out halfway? Mm. Like I turned off Netflix halfway. Yeah, well, it's easier to just turn off Netflix. Yeah, hundred percent. But with this one, obviously, I couldn't turn off. I couldn't turn this film off. But the first. Hour. Wait, so you watched it for the first time for this podcast? No, no, no. I'd seen it oh. about a year or so oh, yeah, ago yeah, yeah. when it first went on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first hour of this film, it, it, it takes an hour for something to grab my attention. And it's when Samuel L. Jackson walks into Millie's mm-hmm. and sees Bruce Dern. And there's some sort of recognition between the pair of them. Yeah. Some sort of recognition. And you think maybe that's what the film is going to be about it turns out not to be but at least something was happening Mm. because up until that point i think it was a step backwards for quentin tarantino the dialogue wasn't really pushing the plot forward it was just characters talking about stuff that really when you think about it has no relevance to the plot there's this there's this big thing about the fact that it's post-civil war so it's set I mean, Tarantino doesn't give specifics. He just says like... 1887, isn't it? So yeah. it's a couple of years after the so war. So he's like 10, 10 or so years, I think, after the end of the Civil War. And he's taught... He said no, I that, think it might be... Soon, I think it might be two or three years after it? the Civil War. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, he says that this film looks at what the fallout from that is, racially and, you know, societally. And so I think that he was trying to do a... There's, I've read reviews where, where reviewers have talked about every kind of American at that time is in, trapped inside this haberdashery. And so... Yes, with the exception of the Native Americans. Yeah, exactly. So it's not really representative. But no. I think what he was trying to do was this, this chamber piece where he puts... He throws together different kinds of people and then sees what happens. But it's they're not different enough. It's like some of them are gang members anyway... Because they um, all sound like Quentin Tarantino. Well, they all just sound exactly Even like the Mexican. Tarantino. Yeah, I know. Even the Mexican sounds like Quentin Tarantino. Even the Australians. Why are they there? Uh, why was Even Zoe the Bell English in this? Guy. Why was Zoe Bell in this film? Because you love Zoe Bell. Just put Because he can't be there. friends with Uma Thurman. Yeah, anymore, no. So he has to have <laughs> Zoe Bell. <laughs> Is he not friends with Uma Thurman? They weren't. They hadn't like made up properly, had they? Because oh. of the whole car crash thing. That's why oh, they haven't worked together death, since Kill from, Bill. Oh, from Kill Bill 2. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But the, the idea that he's wanting to put all these people in a room and see how they react is a, is a brilliant idea. Well, it's like Agatha Christie style. Yes. And yeah. That was one of, that's something I'm going to come on to in a bit. But um, in terms of having a great idea, 
but not really pulling it off. Yeah. It's the same thing he had with Death Proof. I've got a great idea, but he doesn't give it the attention or the respect that his own idea deserves. Because yeah. what we have here is an hour of talking in a carriage and then getting to Millie's. Yeah. It takes, it takes them 40 minutes to get to Millie's. Yeah. yeah. It takes an hour and a half before any sort of mystery is introduced. And that's the who poisoned the coffee. Yeah. And that's the film that I think it's wanting to be. It's wanting to be a Agatha Christie style Western. We have a mystery. You have a room full of people who did it. It's a who done it, but it doesn't ever allow itself to be that. Yeah. Because we find out who poisoned the coffee, not in any detective style. Michael Madsen just says, it was me. <laughs> yeah. And then... And without then what? Without even much of a threat. No, like, exactly. Oh, it was me. Ew, it was me. <laughs> and then what? And then yeah. what? Nothing. And then I actually, I did actually have to fast forward some of the ending. I was like, okay, here's a long pause or here's some <laughs> unessential dialogue. Like, okay, just get to the next bit get to the next point that you're trying to make. This, I would say, if we, if we you know, put it in order and Death Proof is his worst, mm. this is the second worst, Quentin Tarantino. This is the sort of film I feel like, you know, we've often spoken about when the director either has his, his or her first film hit really big or their third or whatever. They have a film that suddenly pushes them from being middling art house to yeah. mainstream. Yeah. They get to do the next film. Like Denis Villeneuve. As, like he made some great um, Spanish language films. Spanish? I think they were Spanish language. He's French. He's oh, they French. French? He's French Canadian. I swear Incendies was in Spanish. I don't know. But then he made... Uh, prisoners which was like boom and he was suddenly like the guy everyone wanted to make a film so. but he's um, yeah but he hasn't then gone on to do the next stage of this normal mm. equation which is Gus Van Sant made it big with Goodwill Hunting and then mm. made something so self-indulgent Psycho yeah Nicholas Winding Refn made it big with Drive and then went and did something self-indulgent with Only God Forgives this feels like Django was a huge 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 hit for Quentin Tarantino, so he's gone on to do something so self-indulgent and he shot himself in the foot mm. like he shot Daisy Donahue in the, in the foot. It's like, it, it could be a, a theatre production, it could be a play, it's pretty much single location, but it's not anywhere near as concise and clever and actually dialogue-driven as the majority of most plays. It's not as dialogue-driven as his previous two films. Yeah. After the one-two punch of Inglourious Bastards and Django, this is a really, this really is a step backwards. It's such a mm. shame because he was suddenly becoming a director that wasn't overly concerned with what he wanted as a fanboy. He was almost putting the audience first and then suddenly, boom, he goes back to being mm. a it... fiction guy. I think it's because he holds the the Western genre in such high regard. Like his favorite director is Sergio Leone, and his favorite his, the film that made him want to be a director is Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, and you can feel him trying to pay homage to that kind of film with The Hateful Eight, but it just means that pacing is 
annihilated. There is no pace to this film whatsoever. No. God no. And he's it's, trying it's to recreate relentlessly. Yeah. Unfocused. Yeah, and then, but it's similar to what you were saying about Death Proof, where you got almost bra- you brainwashed yourself into thinking it was a better film than it actually was. Yes. It's because when the Hateful Eight is good. There's maybe five moments where it's really fucking good. Which ones are they for you? Oh, God. Right, okay. (laughs) Um, The bit where Samuel L. Jackson confronts uh, Bruce Dern. I pulled out my black pecker. Yeah, that bit. Yeah. Um, The bit where... um, Like, it can be little moments. Like, when John, uh, played by Kurt Russell, when he's talking about how he's going to take Jennifer Jason Leigh's character to the gallows, and she's like... (laughs) And she mimes, yeah. mimes hanging herself. Yeah. That's hilarious. Um, the coffee bit is brilliant. Yeah, when he comes in you know. as his own narrator. That's bizarre. That's, no, I think that's brilliant. He's, he's yeah. written it. He is a voice. Yeah. Maybe more directors should do that. It's, um, it reminded me of when... Um, I won't Hitchcock. say which... No, no, I, mean, I, I won't say which book, but in one of the Stephen King books that I've read... read mm. That I've written, I wrote it myself. <laughs> that I've read, he comes in as a character... And yeah. it's quite, it, it's it's um, revealed in the story that he is the writer of the story. It's mm. it's a really cool, brilliant uh, piece of fourth wall breaking. Yeah, that device in this film feels like a holdover from Kill Bill, where Kill Bill broke medium, changed medium, bounced, and just kind of did whatever it wanted to do. And then yes, this... but in quite broad oh, colours. Yeah. Here it's. It, I wouldn't even say subtle. It's just a very unfocused mess. Yeah. Like, like it wasn't fully finished yeah. when they went to shoot it. Yeah, but it gives it this kind of almost campfire feeling where you almost imagine him sitting by that fire in the haberdashery telling you the story about yeah. what happened here. They should. I mean, he should have run with that. It should yeah. have just been halfway through. Maybe he could have started off or could have been a narrator throughout in mm. in the way that Barry Lyndon has a narrator that has no presence in the film. Yeah. The narrator of Barry Lyndon doesn't appear on screen. We don't know who the narrator really is. He's yeah. just a voice for us. And there's the line, that really jarring line right towards the end when uh, Chris Mannix, who's the, the new sheriff, he goes, and this is where your story ends or yeah. something. And it's like, I'm sorry, what? When, when was anyone aware <laughs> this was a story apart from us when Quentin Tarantino started talking to us? Yes. It was so stupid. <laughs> It's almost like he had that idea in an earlier draft, but then just Didn't chipped it, it out. out. Yeah. yeah. So stupid. Um, so stupid. So stupid, Tarantino. But this used this was actually going to be a sequel to Django, which kind of makes sense. Yes, because it's set. It's that similar period. Yeah, it's set. Well, J- Django is just before the Civil War. This is after, so mm. it's a matter of, I think the Civil War was only five or six years. So this is maybe yeah. 12 years after. Yeah, I don't know. But it was meant to be Django in White Hell. He's, Tarantino started writing it in kind of a novel form. And then he realized that Django actually didn't fit into the story at all. That's um, a shame because... It would have made it way more uh, purposeful, I think. Yeah, you know, such a recognizable character. Not necessarily in the wider cultural sense. But none of these characters really stick out for mm. me as being someone you as the audience member could hit your wagon to. Yeah. They're also unreliable. Part of the plot is, yes, they are unreliable, but also they're unreliable because they're not characters. Yeah. I agree. The only the only character who I wanted to see what they would do next was 
um, Daisy, Jennifer Jason Lee, because mm-hmm. she was such a weird, genuinely unique creation where she, you meet her, she's beaten to hell. She's got a massive raccoon style black eye. Yeah. She's got this big hat covering up her head. She com- She almost looks like a little boy <laughs> and they just keep beating the crap out of her. Yeah. And it's it's upsetting, but then it's almost like she's being treated like a man she's been treated exactly the same way as all the men treat each other so is that progressive i don't know (laughs) (laughs) but she has such a gallows humor about her and you only really you only really understand where that's coming from at the end when you realize that she's known all along yeah she's not dying well she thinks she's not going to die because her brother is going to come rescue her but she doesn't know how because she's surprised when he pops up yeah. And it's Magic Mike. Yeah. Or not Magic Mike. And he's like, hello, sister. <laughs> hello from the other side. <laughs> I thought she was great. She was funny. Yeah, She was different. She was engaging. She was fucked up. She, and like... She was Dolores Claiborne's daughter. Yes, How she was. Different. I know. She didn't I, have a fax machine in the bag this time. She's got 98 acting credits and I couldn't name more than four or five of them because... Her and Tim Roth turn up in Twin Peaks... Series oh, three, yeah. a few years after this, as a double act together. Ah, how funny! Maybe they, that weird. Yeah, maybe they were like, "I'm not going to do it without my buddy." <laughs> Don't know, but she was Oscar nominated for this, and that's how it should be because yes. she's great and she gets put through it. But big she time. does get, you know, punched, shot, mocked, humiliated, thrown things thrown in her face, controlled, and then finally hung or hanged yeah. by men. Yeah, it's horrific. So I don't know if this is. Quentin Tarantino's odd way of saying I'm going to treat women exactly the same as I treat men and mm. therefore I'm therefore I'm making them equal <laughs> or he's is, not the emperor <laughs> do it <laughs> <laughs> or is this his way of stepping backwards and just treating women like shit like he did in Reservoir Dogs I genuinely I, I, there's no answer I don't know I think that she has no autonomy. She is literally chained to a man yeah. for most of the film. All um, of the film, except when when, when she's she eating. Cuts, when she cut, yeah, when yeah, but then she has to cut herself loose. Yeah, and that's hilarious. She's unchained, like she's Jane. unchained. In fact, that sequence has the most generic, traditional moment in any Quentin Tarantino film, where. Um, Mrs. Goggins' son has passed out. I don't feel so good. He yeah. falls back. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson's in bed with his dick shot off and can't move. He would have been dead hours oh, ago. Oh, they would all would have been dead. Yeah. You get shot in the stomach. Oh, bye bye. Yeah. Bye bye. See ya. Bleed out. You're dead. But she's chopping the arm off and she's crawling or reaching towards the dead guy, but he shoots her. That's the most traditional mm. moment in any Quentin Tarantino film because it's just like an 80s film. That's yeah. like the end of some Eddie Murphy film from the 80s. It's like, whoop, not dead. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what he was thinking. He, he, he always says, I'm going to stop making films when I'm 60 because he has this thing that all great filmmakers will go weak. Yeah. All you have, and he said this on a, one of those Hollywood, round, Hollywood Reporter roundtables mm. and he was sat next to Ridley Scott. Oh, wow. Who hasn't made a decent film since... Uh, Gladiator. Or I would even say Thelma and Louise. Yeah. Thelma! Thelma! God Thelma. damn it, Thelma! But, um... Check the Tom Stubbs podcast for previous <laughs> Thelma and Louise episode. Maybe this is him on the turn. Mm. Is, this a, is this a bit of an odd 
indication that maybe he is or has lost his touch. Is Django his peak? Is that where he's peaked and everything now is downhill? I'd be no. interested to see what happens with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, is well, that going to bring him back up or is that just going to be a bit of a damp turd again? <laughs> I would say uh, yes, if we hadn't had Death Proof. Because Death Proof is such a turd. But, and well, it's right hap- in the middle of his career. But, so. but look what happened when Death Proof happened. He went and did Inglorious Bastards. Yeah. And then Django. So there is a progression up. Yeah. And I would say as films, as, um, as constructed and structured pieces of narrative and entertainment, Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards are much more enjoyable and, and better put together than Pulp Fiction Mm. and Jackie Brown. Mm. And they're more him as well. They feel like, you know, Tarantino at the peak of his powers. He's figured out how to work dialogue organically and narratively. He's found his Um, voice and worked out how dialogue can push the plot forward. But that doesn't mean that he can't then wobble slightly, which he has with Hateful Eight. Hmm. I just, I wonder, it's almost like, because this, this was the film that he almost didn't make because... Yeah, you mentioned the, um, that in the last podcast. What did you mean? Well, because the script leaked in January 2014 and he was so pissed off that he shelled it and was like, I'm just going to make it into a novel and I'm not going to make it into a film. Didn't he do a live reading? And then four months film? later, yeah, four months later, he, um, for whatever reason, decided to do a live reading of the script with Sam Jackson, Kurt Russell... Uh, Zoe Bell, Walter Goggins, and Amber Tamblin was playing Daisy. Who's Amber Tamblin? She, wasn't she in like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and all that kind of stuff? In the what? Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. What's that? It's a, that a dirty movie. It's a teen film with Blake Lively in it. And um, Blake Lively? oh, for fuck's sake, Rob, watch our film. <laughs> <laughs> but they read it out, and apparently it went down really well. And yeah. Sam Jackson was like, "Oh, come on, let's make it into a film." And Tarantino went, "Oh, all right then." they did um but it's almost like maybe they shouldn't have because maybe it did work better as kind of a radio play style thing yeah Um, with sound effects like yeah (laughs) (laughs) even though visually this is gorgeous yes but it's i mean can you think of any actual defining visuals in this film just the start really i mean the the main ones that stick out for me are the opening setting of the scenes of the of the location where you just have that jesus cross with the snow on top of it and you pull out and the wagon comes past but i don't know if that's a defining image oh, well, that's the, just the, na- very... the naked guy walking through the snow is quite naked guy yeah when sam jackson's um leading that white guy through the snow oh yes like, that's quite striking but that doesn't it doesn't stand out to me in the same way that so many scenes in Kill Bill, yeah. you can, you know, take the image from, from Google and frame it. Mm. Even with Death Proof, there's some imagery there. But I think he was, I think he was so restrained. I think he was trying to be quite staid, like an old Western, but he forgot that Westerns actually could be quite beautiful and yeah. really quite compositionally accomplished. And so, like, the, you obviously the shot of the searchers with John Wayne in the doorway. Yeah, which is, he stole for, which is stole for Django. Kill Bill. And Django, yeah. yeah. But there's a, at the two-hour mark, as if we hadn't been through enough, Yeah, you suddenly, it flashes back. Yeah, which is, for 
about 20 minutes. Well, it has a two-minute section where the carriage is just riding through the snow mm-hmm. for no reason other than he's having a big old 70-millimeter wank. Yeah, basically. It's so infuriating. Because like, I don't, we don't learn anything about who's in the carriage during that two minutes. It's mm. just as if he's got money from the Wyoming Tourist Board. Yeah. And they said, well, we need shots of this snowy place because we want to sell, you know, tourist tickets on the back of your movie. Yeah. He's like, oh, okay, would... 20 million. All right, all right, do it. They'd be quite stuck to do that, though, because they literally gave him basically empty land to shoot on. They gave him a, a big old... A multiple acre yeah. ranch to but it's like on. Yeah. you couldn't just go visit that place because there's nothing there even the shack was built for the production so you know um, I don't know I think that was there there was definitely a a temporary thing they built stuff built definitely. yeah maybe it was the shitter that they maybe they shot never... that black guy in yeah I remember pausing the film to go for a wee and then being like how the F is there still 36 minutes left of this film they're literally <laughs> I can it says the last chapter how is it this long I can't believe they're dragging it out this much it was it was really a, a test of my patience I have to say and the 70 millimeter one was longer do you think that it's a film that you have to watch in the winter when it's dark because I, I think that actually is when I watched it when it was dark and cold outside and it was an evening when I was just in on my own and I just sat and watched it and it it had a different feel to it because you didn't want to be doing anything else. Is no. <laughs> no? No. I mean, okay. whenever I'm watching films, I'm not, I haven't got one eye on the screen and one eye on what's going out the window. In my house, I do because the sun comes through oh, yeah. the windows. Yeah. So you live in a greenhouse. Quite difficult to see, yeah. You live in an oh. open top greenhouse. I know, it's beautiful. Why did Samuel L. Jackson's character turn his back on the Bruce Dern character after he'd given him a gun? Power play, isn't it? He's taking the piss he's kind of trying to figure out if he does actually have the guts to shoot him or not but that's a pretty dodgy it's a way to find out if he yeah does have the guts it's a big risk i think it's because he he knew that bruce stern's character would want to know the end of the yeah, story that he was yeah. halfway through huh, yeah that's true i there was th- this was a film where there were so many coincidences yeah it's just like okay what did you i don't you didn't know he was going to be there. No. He didn't know you... What? I didn't believe that would happen. I'm sorry. Yeah. I know we're suspending disbelief for watching a film, but too many coincidences within that one place. It makes it oh, all fall apart. And also massive um, goof or continuity error or whatever. That flashback that suddenly introduces us to Daisy's gang who yeah. come to the haberdashery. The four passengers. The four passengers, yeah. Um, there was this great long spiel where Simon L. Jackson says, I know that um, Minnie wouldn't leave you in charge of the haberdashery because you're Mexican. But then... Oh, she's yeah, because she ha- said, like, no horses no dogs. and no... Me- no dogs and no Mexicans. Yeah. Oh, but no, he did say... Are you talking about the sign? Because he yeah. did say she took it down because suddenly she, she was dogs. allowing in dogs, yeah. But then when all the four passengers turn up, she doesn't say to the Mexican character, you're not allowed in here. Yeah. She, nothing is said. Nothing whatsoever is said. She just lets him exist there. <laughs> yeah. So that entire thing is was completely fucked up. Yeah. And that entire I mean, sequence it, it, it's is too either, long anyway. Oh, it, it's just, always because he likes the sound of his own voice. They could have just walked in and shot them. There was no reason to be like winking at each other and like slowly taking out their guns. They could have just walked in and killed everyone immediately. Yes. Why were they? True. Why were they playing along and making tea and shit? It didn't make any sense. Coffee. 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 Cappuccino. Tim Roth. 
First time with Quentin Tarantino again since Pop Fiction. Yeah. When he played Pumpkin. <laughs> Both him and his character have made really annoying choices. Yeah, I agree. It's like so annoying. Oh, hello. <laughs> yes, I would love to. It's so bizarre. He's really shrill and posh. Yeah, but for no a for no reason at all. I mean, he's, he's, an, he's an affectation for his character, who's actually like, what, what, mate? Yeah, but but it doesn't make it any less annoying. No, I agree. Tim Roth has made that choice. Yeah, well, can, both of them, him and Cutie, have made that choice, and it's a really very irritating choice. And quite um, tellingly, he once again in a restricted space is shot in the chest and bleeds out. And makes the same... We're going to be okay! <laughs> and Michael Manson, again, is shot repeatedly and blown across the room, not in a good way, and dies. <laughs> and but before that, we get that glorious slow-mo hair flip that his fringe does just before he tries to get his gun out. <laughs> oh, and that was the other funny bit. The slow-mo when Sam Jackson's like, What oh, yeah, are like, you doing? Yeah, yeah, Michael Manson's like... No gun, and then sort of turns, and then sort of does that Michael uh, Madsen look where he's like, "Yeah, I'm arrogant. I've got it. Yeah. You can't get me." Yes, I was in Species Two, but you can't get me. <laughs> it's like the slow mo Alien Queen in Aliens when she suddenly is like, "Dum dum 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 dum." Slow mo move. Get away <laughs> from her, you. <laughs> <laughs> slow-mo like that actually makes me feel a bit sick i don't like it this is the eighth film by the way it says it very explicitly at the start this is the eighth film yes. but i think he was getting pissed off from people being like kill bill one and two are different films so he's like this is my fucking eighth film okay guys yeah because he hadn't mentioned any sort of number since just number two <laughs> no because i remember kill bill was always advertised with the fourth film by Quentin Tarantino. Then I'm pretty sure uh, Death Proof was also introduced, not in the film, but in the advertisements as the fifth film by Quentin Uh, Tarantino. But not actually in the opening credits. No. Whereas this is the first one that's been explicitly, guys, this is my eighth film, right? Yes, but also it's called The Hateful Eight. Ah. And it was always, it was often like um, written as the, T-H-E, H-8. Eight, yeah. Eight, so that's, that's could like, be eighty-eight. The crazy eighty. Oh, oh the crazy my 88. god! It all fits together. Joshua, the dear silent, and it's all fitting together. And the film has a pen pal in it, and pen pal speak was always like gr eight, or like hi hi mate m eight. That was just you, and the girl <laughs> that sent you that expensive book. Did, was pen pal time. actually a term in the seventeen hundreds or eighteen hundreds? I think it was just write me. Yeah. Just write me. Call me. Telegram me. Yeah. Anyway, Mary Lou's calling. <laughs> Always gets me that bit. <laughs> Why did he nice have touch. the letter read at the end? It's a bullshit letter. They've already revealed it to be fake. So why do they need comfort in it? Maybe they're bonding because they were kind of adversaries for a lot of the film. Yeah. I mean, I will say that as a positive. Yeah. It was a way. Because he compliments him and says, that's a nice touch. And he's like, thank you. And then they die. So, so maybe, kind of, okay, maybe that is the reason because good. it is a, 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 you know, they were opposed. One was on the Confederate side, the Goggins, mm. and Samuel L. Jackson was with the Union, the North uh, Americans in the war. So they obviously had friction throughout the film. Lots of N-word. 
Mm. Samuel L. Jackson. Sexual tension. Sexual tension? Yeah. Between who? Not really. Because <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to put his... There is no sex in the film. Dick and... Well, apart from when Samuel L. Jackson gets a blowjob. Well, there's a rape in the film then. A, a mouth rape, yeah. yes. But if it even happened. Yeah, Because true. he's a fucking lion. The letter proves that. It wasn't from Abraham Lincoln. But it is nice that those two, a white guy and a, and a black guy who are opposed... But, kind of fall into this this team up to mm. do away with the rest of them yeah yeah to get rid of an evil woman basically and that's the link that's one of the links to tarantino's next film uh once upon a time in hollywood which is about the or partly about the charles manson cult murdering sharon tate yeah and um when tarantino described daisy domregue in this film he described her as susan atkins of the wild west Susan, oh, Susan Atkins okay. being the, one of the members of the Charles Manson cult, I don't know too so. much about the Charles Manson murders. I should probably look into it before it's insane. Once Upon a Time. Yeah, it's horrible. I know a little bit. It's horrible. But I know they were a cult and he didn't... Act, I don't think he no, actually murdered anyone. He didn't anyone. kill anybody, but he no, just he got coerced everybody into doing it. Yeah. He was like fame hungry. He really wanted to be a musician. And then when he failed as a musician, yeah. he kind of found his own way of becoming famous, which was having a cult. Wow. He wanted to be adored. He had that complex that's just like, adore me. What's well, a good um, job I didn't fail as a photographer. I know, exactly. You could have done loads of people I want to kill. Anyway, moving on to Quentin Tarantino grammar, we have returning players. Yeah, we do. Samuel L. Jackson. Yeah. First time since Django. Yeah. Long, <laughs> long time. Kurt Russell back. First time since Death Proof. He was brilliant. Kurt, Kurt Russell is always good in everything he does. He's even great. The shit. And he's the link to one of... Tarantino's favourite films, which has a massive influence on this. Overboard. The Thing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because he uses some of the music. He does use some he of does. Uh, Ennio Morricone. Uh, wasn't this score, an, a leftover score from somewhere that he repurposed for this? I'm pretty uh, sure I, I heard an interview with Tarantino say the, the score wasn't actually written for Hateful Eight. He wanted... Morricone to do the score but he didn't have time to write one so he just gave him old stuff that never got used mm. did, did Morricone do the score for the thing yeah he did he did, he, he did the score for this but then Tarantino had recycled some of Morricone's yeah, like stuff bestiality and in Kill and Bill other. and Death yeah. Proof and Inglourious Bastards yeah but specifically the score that we hear in this film apart from the stuff that was used from the thing I'm pretty sure some of the stuff in this film was brand new for this film, but it was repurposed as old stuff that was never used anywhere else that Morricone had had in his archives. Maybe I'm getting confused. What day is it? <laughs> who who is it? Twelve. Tim Roth um, is back. Actually, can I just say something funny though? Yeah. That Morricone composed the score without actually watching the film. So all the music he created, like often scoring, is in a sound booth where yeah, you watch you the just, scenes, cue it up, and yeah. you cue it up. Yeah, but he didn't actually watch the film when he made the music. For oh. Why did he get out of that? That's how it? good he is. Yeah, <laughs> that's not fair. Um, Walton Goggins is back. He was yeah. Billy in uh, the Django Unchained. Basically playing the same character, just slightly more honourable. Yes, Zoe Bell is back. Yeah, I don't know why. Do playing the same character. Yes, just like sli- slightly herself, like smiley, coy. Like I'm going to sort that out for you. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I'm going to go get that car from New Zealand. I mean, was in 1877 was anybody travelling from New Zealand to America? She got the Eurostar. Uh, Michael Madsen, yeah, he's back, back properly for the first time since, well, the first time ever since uh, Volume, Volume 2. two. Um, did I say Tim Roth? Yeah, because it's the first in 21 years. Mm-hmm. Western, this is an out-and-out 
Western. It's not even yeah because Django not even trying to be anything different. Django was like a Southern. That's what Tarantino called it, and this is his first proper full on Western. Not even like ironic Western. Like it Volume is a Two, full on Western. Yeah, Volume Two had tones of Sergio Western, Leone. Yeah, and, yeah exactly. Like, Yellow title cards are back. Yeah, that same gorgeous Stephen King font. Yes, chapters are back. Chapters are back. Yeah, the N word is back. Time hopping. Not as much as there was, has been. No, no, no. I it's mean, pretty much chronological until... Until the flashback. Yeah. Yeah. Which completely derails the entire second half of the film. Yes. So, wish he hadn't Which, done Which, to be honest, I prefer the second half of this film compared to the first. At least we yeah. have the coffee poisoning. Guns, and her getting her teeth bashed out, which is horrific. Yes. Guns and violence, obviously. I mean, aliases. the gore is amped up something amazing in this film. Yeah. I mean, it, it carries on from how it looked in... Django, mm. where explosive, very explosive, yeah. like head wounds, and like the Mexican's head literally explodes into nothingness from two bullets. Yeah, which I just—that's not going to happen. I'm sorry, no, that's <laughs> not going to happen. But that carries on from Django because this film is not mm. overly violent. There's a there's a real threat of violence throughout, but when it hits, it's very sharp and it's very shocking and it's but it's gross out violence like yeah. when when kurt russell is being sicking up blood when he's dying from being poisoned oh it's pure he sicks it all over her face yeah it's pure cronenberg body horror yeah red apple tobacco not cigarettes mm, different also the pan down to a lower level shot that's it the people under the floorboards yeah he yeah. goes down to Done it again to magic mike for the third fourth time third time so the first time was kill bill yeah, so Kill Bill 1, then Kill Bill 2, then... Oh, oh yeah, because under the trailer. Under the trailer. Kill Bill 1 was in the manga section. Glorious Bastards. Yes, and, and then now this. this. Yeah. Yes. Gorgeous Vistas have now become a, a QT grammar. Yeah, it has. It's just it's self-indulgent yeah. in this one. I do like that Mr. Orange and Mr. Blonde are reunited. Oh, yeah. And well, Jaws that, and Pumpkin. There's that thing where it's Tarantino wants to think that he does have the universe that characters could coexist like Mr. Blonde could be in Kill Bill and that kind of stuff he's talked about so he's yeah. often talked about a, a Jules and Vince not Jules and Vince a um, a, a Mr. Blonde yeah uh, whatever his real name was and his brother Vince oh, yeah. from Pulp Fiction going off and doing the adventures mm. themselves the breaking format thing that we mentioned earlier with him narrating suddenly that's very much a QT thing yeah it's just not as successful as say the big anime yeah thing. the big the big brush strokes from from kill bill yeah um do you think you'll watch this one again anytime soon no and this is the thing when i watched it the first time i actually enjoyed it more because i think there was more of a sense of mystery and not knowing exactly what kind of tricks the film was going to pull so and then you realize there are and I realized no real tricks there aren't really any um, so yeah, second time around, I actually didn't enjoy it as much as the first, so I probably won't watch it again. I've often heard people say, you watch the, you watch a film the first time to enjoy it mm. and the second time to work out how it's done. Yeah. But the problem here is the first time, whether you enjoy it or not, you might enjoy it, you might not. You don't want to watch it a second time because you don't give a fuck how it's done. Yeah, it's just too long for a start. Like two hours, 47 minutes, unnecessarily. Which is not that much longer than something like Pulp Fiction yeah. or Kill Bill in total. Kill Bill in total is almost four hours. Yeah. But at least something is fucking happening. There's too many I wish, characters. I wish they had... Yeah, there's more than eight, isn't there? Yeah, there's too I many. I wish 
they'd poisoned the coffee earlier. Yeah. In fact, I wish they'd poisoned the coffee earlier so much so that I wish Quentin Tarantino had drunk it and not made this fucking movie. <laughs> So that was The Hateful Eight, directed by Quentin Tarantino. Joshua, give us a clue what's coming up in the next episode, which, if you're listening to this at the time it is released, we're going to take a little break until the next film is out. What is the next film? We're going to Hollywood. Ah, you know, the Hollywood dog. Hollywood. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and tune in so you don't miss that episode. And check us out on Twitter. We're at Pod. Let us know what you think of our filmmaker-focused seasons and give us some recommendations for what you'd like us to cover next. Yeah, because we're running out of Quentin Tarantino films (laughs) (laughs) and there's no way we're going to go do the ones he's written. And we haven't got enough time to watch all of Steven Spielberg. So give us... Give us some filmmakers that have a manageable-sized CV filmography block. I always imagine if we did Spielberg, we'd have to do it in decade blocks. So his 70s output, 80s, 90s, and then everything he's done since Munich, which I would not look forward to watching. That would be quite dark and upsetting. And rather boring as well. (laughs) Yeah. We're off to drink the coffee. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh, you're winning. Cut.